You are listening to the CMC Podcast. Join us each week for messages designed to equip, inspire, and motivate. And now for today's message from Pastor Paul Kern. Well, we want to welcome you. If you're joining us by live stream or by podcast, we are going to be in chapter 3 of Romans. And we're going to go ahead and uh, kind of get moving in that direction. Now, Tim, Tim, our lead pastor, covered in chapter 1. Really, man's need for salvation. I mean, that was the thrust of chapter 1. Chapter 2, the first half, we see God showing no partiality. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're born Jewish. That doesn't have anything to do with salvation. So Paul was making that very clear. And then the last half of chapter 2, we see the actual condition of the Jewish people. They were actually not where they thought they were, and Paul was showing them that. Paul was very, very well aware of the arguments that he was going to be getting from the Jewish people. So once again, in this session, we're going to discuss the subject. Paul knew the arguments that he was going to encounter, so he's trying to head them off before they actually start trying to rebut what he's trying to say. So we're going to basically break this session up into two sections, for those of you who like to take notes. We're going to break this up into two sections. Uh, We're going to start with verse 1 through 8, and verse 1 through 8 is going to deal with three questions or three arguments that people might have after reading Paul's discussion that he had in chapter 2. So we're going to look at three things there. Then in Verse 9 through 20, Paul's going to talk about how everyone needs salvation, not just the Gentiles, not just a certain group of people, not just a certain class of people, but everyone needs salvation. He brings all of it together. You know, he's, he's proved his point against racism, you know, because the Jews were saying, you know, we're God's chosen people, we're the only race, but he's proved that point. Nobody's better. Nobody's worse. A certain race has nothing uh, to do with it whatsoever. God does not see according to race. God does not, neither male or female. You know, God looks at the heart. So now Paul steps back from the racial issue, and he really begins to hone in on the individual man and his need for salvation. So let's start out by reading verses 1 through 8 together, and we're going to look at these three questions that Paul heads off. Then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any profit in the ceremony of circumcision? Well, yes, there's great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God, which is a big deal, right? True, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, does that mean that God will be unfaithful? Well, of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right by what you say, and you will win your case in court. Verse 5, but some might say, our sinfulness serves a good purpose, for it helps people to see how righteous God is. Is it unfair then for him to punish us? Now, this is merely a human point of view, Paul's pointing out. This is like a human argument. Well, of course not. If God were, entirely, were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? But someone might still argue, well, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? Now, once again, Paul knew how they were going to try to mock him, okay? So he's, he's heading this off before they even get into this with him. 
And so verse 8, and some people even slander us by claiming that we say, the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. All right, let's start out with these three arguments that Paul is dealing with. Argument number one, the argument of racial advantage, okay? And this is verse one and two. When Paul told them that because they knew the law, they're even guiltier than the Gentiles or than the heathen, that they, that's what they called them, he knew that it wouldn't sit well with the Jews. He knew that they wouldn't find that to be very welcoming news. And their argument is going to naturally be, then what good is it for us to be a Jew? I mean, what good is it for God to pick us to be his chosen people if that doesn't have any advantage for us? So did God not show his favor on us is basically the argument that they're presenting to Paul. Because the entire Old Testament, you know, if if you read through the Old Testament, you know, basically reading through the Old Testament, it would appear to indicate that God did show them favoritism and God was a racist that God was a racist, basically. That's what it would look like. And it's obvious that the Jews were stuck on themselves because God had shown his divine favor on them by giving them the law. But Paul's view seemed to contradict what the Jewish culture at that time believed. So the question had to be answered. Is there a contradiction between what God's taught them in the Old Testament and what Paul is revealing to them in this New Testament revelation in, Revela- in, in uh, Romans. So there's a two, kind of a two-fold question in verse 1. Number one, what advantage does the Jew have? And number two, what profit is there in circumcision? Now remember, God required the Jewish men to be circumcised. It was an outward sign of a covenant that God had made with them. And, you know, circumcision has carried over even into our culture today. You know, some, some uh, men get circumcised, some men don't get circumcised. From a Jewish perspective, that may signify covenant with God. Most of the time in America, that's more of a hygiene move than it is anything else. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with, with covenant, okay? But in this situation, it did. So the first question uses the word advantage, And then the second uses the word profit. What advantage, what profit? Now, these are two synonyms. The the then in the first question, therefore, looks back to the position that we read in chapter 2. So you'd you'd have to kind of go back and read chapter 2 to make this applicable to where we're at right now. But if that position is correct, then there was, was there any advantage to being a Jew? Paul says, Yes. He says yes. So the first phrasing of the question makes race an issue. The second makes circumcision the issue. And you can just kind of feel the Jews at this point boiling, angry, and mad at Paul, even for bringing this point up, because God was the one that told them to circumcise themselves. God was the one that told them to do that. So... Paul doesn't really give a thorough answer, but he strikes at the heart of the matter. Paul starts out by answering, much in every way. Much in every way. Is there any advantage to being a Jew? Is there any advantage to circumcision? Paul says, much in every way. Now, if you're a Star Wars fan, Paul's answer kind of sounds like Master Yoda. You know, it's one of those short, ingenious answers, right? Right? 
much in every way. I mean, he's like, all right, okay, we got it. So if we look back in chapter 2, verses 25 through 29, it said that circumcision was an external act that granted no special favor from God. That was Paul's argument. It granted no special favor from God. On the other hand, God did not command this practice. I mean, God commanded the practice, so there's got to be some kind of value to it, or God wouldn't have told them to do it. But circumcision only has value when it's understood the way God wanted them to understand it. Now, once again, we as people, we just have a habit of taking something deep and making it really shallow and external. And that's exactly what happened in this situation. Circumcision is an outward sign of an inward change of heart. That was the whole point. But they missed it. They, they absolutely missed it. If there's no inward change, then the outward sign is void and meaningless. It doesn't matter. In other words, we could all go to church, but if there's not an inward change in our heart, if, we don't, if our heart doesn't burn with love for God, if we're not convicted when we miss the mark and we sin and we make a mistake, then there's no advantage of sitting here in this building and warming a seat. There's absolutely no advantage. Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 7, everybody go there real quick. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 21. I mean, this will be a familiar passage. We've heard this before, but I think it definitely applies to um, what we're talking about here in this situation. When we're we're talking about, you know, authenticity, you know, that's what we're talking about here, being real, not playing games. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father will enter heaven. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me. You break God's laws. So the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. So you, you can operate in the giftings and live in sin. You can operate in the giftings in your heart, not be right with God. I've seen uh, different people over the years do that. You know, even people on television who were big-time ministers, um, you know, operating in the gifts, but then in secret they were, you know, visiting prostitutes and doing things that they weren't supposed to be doing. And probably all of us can think of an example of, of someone in that situation. But But let's kind of move this more toward where we are, you know, where, where we are here in, in this building or in this gathering here, raising your hands, praising God, doesn't do anything. It's just an outward sign unless, come on, unless my heart is rejoicing, right? I mean, I can come to the altar and kneel even, but once again, that may not mean anything. It depends if my heart is kneeling. Amen? And so this is the, the argument that Paul is presenting. And the Jews erred in placing value on the sign itself, on the circumcision itself, instead of what the circumcision actually represented or was meant to represent, a circumcising of the heart of flesh. 
so that we would be consecrated unto God. So Paul gives us very specific advantage in that they were given the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the Old Testament, and that was a very big deal. How was that an advantage? Because they knew firsthand about God. I mean, the Gentiles didn't know firsthand about God. The Jews knew firsthand about God. You know, isn't there an advantage to growing up in church your whole life? Well, absolutely there is an advantage to growing up in church your whole life. You sit under the Word. The seed of God is sown into your heart. It bears fruit all through your life. I mean, I remember when I was very young, I was introduced to Christ. But then in my teenage and my young adult years, I rebelled and I fell away from God. But guess what? That seed, come on, come on, that seed was in there. So there's a huge advantage in this situation. The Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not what? He won't depart. Not, not forever. Now, he may, you know, and some of you that are parents here tonight, and you have some that are wondering, listen, don't have faith. Don't give up. Stand on the promises of God. My poor mother, I about wore her out. Wore her out, bless that woman's soul. Mom, I'm so sorry about that too, you know. <clears throat> but I came back. And, and that's what we see here. So when a seed is planted, you know, it's hard for it not to grow. It's hard for it not to grow. <clears throat> so verse 3 says, does unbelief cancel the promises of God? In other words, the, the, does the unfaithfulness of man cancel the promises of God? Well, Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says, God does not change. So there's your answer. It doesn't. Isaiah 25, 1 says, God is faithful to his word. Come on, can I have an amen? God is faithful to his word. But now Paul indicates in chapter 2 that the Jews are just as wicked as the heathen, and they're headed for severe judgment. Whoa. So will God go back on his word? Well, three things here. Verse 4 says, God forbid... Of course not. God's not going to do that because the faithfulness of God will never be nullified by anything that we do. Oh, I should have got an amen on that one. Because, come on now, because there's times where we are unfaithful. But aren't you glad that God remains faithful? Have you ever just got down on your knees and just say, God, I'm so thankful to you, Father, that you are faithful to me even when I act like a dummy? When I do something stupid, God, you're still faithful to me. Isn't it good to know that? And then it goes on, let God be true. Though everyone else, a liar, God is true. God always speaks truth. And truth includes God's promises. See, truthfulness is essential to faithfulness. I'm going to say that again. Truthfulness is essential to faithfulness. So God will be justified in what he says. He'll be proved right, in other words. Now, you know, I remember at times in my life where I questioned God and I didn't believe and and all of that, but the Bible makes it very, very clear that God ultimately will be justified in what he says. And see, that's we don't have time to get into all this at all, but, you know, when you start talking about, you know, the final judgment, you know, all of the people that are, in hell and all of the people that are in heaven will all come before the great beam of seat, the great white throne, and God will show them he's just and he's right. 
Here is why you are where you are, so that you will know that I am a righteous judge. I I judge fairly and righteously. Now, here is the problem. God made a great promise, well, great promises to Israel, but because of their unbelief, they fell under a curse. That's what happened to them. Now, there's two things that we have to understand about God's promises, church, and this is very important that we understand this. Number, number one, the first thing you have to understand is God's promises to man are conditional. They are conditional. They're not unconditional, they're conditional. Even if it's, it's implied, even if it's not stated, it's implied. Let me give you an example. If you're, if you're working for a boss, there's conditions to you getting a paycheck, even if it's not stated. It's implied. Okay, you just know, if I don't show up and do what I'm supposed to do, I'm not going to get paid. Now, he may not have specifically told you that, but it's implied. I mean, it's clearly understood. So whether he tells you about it or not, it doesn't matter. Also, God will be justified in the fact that his promises to Israel will come to pass. Now, I say Israel in quotes because there are two views on this, okay? And I'm just going to, I'm talking, I'm just going to barely scratch it because I don't have time. But there's two views. There's the the premillennialist view and the amillennialist view, okay? The premillennialist view, they believe that the time is yet to come when Israel will be restored. In other words, it hasn't happened yet. That's what a premillennialist believes. An amillennialist believes that the present church is a spiritual Israel And it is now, in fact, inheriting the promises of God, even right now as we're here in this building. So either way, either way, God's not going back on his word. And that's what we have to know, and that's our takeaway from this. As a matter of fact, later on in our study, excuse me, when we get into chapter 9 through 11, Paul goes into a lot more detail about this. And So we've looked at the argument of a racial advantage. We've looked at the argument of a circumcision advantage. Now I want to look at the argument of the advantage of sinning. (laughs) Now this is really, it almost seems comical that they brought it up, but they did bring it up. Verse 5, if sin demonstrates the righteousness of God, how can God judge us? In other words, when we sin, aren't we actually doing God a favor? That's what they're saying. That was their argument that they presented to Paul. Because everybody's able to see how awesome God is. There's a clear delineation. It's like, when we're really black, God's really white. When we're really dark, God's really, you know, brilliant white. The Jews probably use this argument, though, to mock Paul's line of thinking. Verses 5 and 7 are saying the same thing. They're just worded a little bit differently. Verse 5 says, I speak as a man. In other words, Paul's saying this is actually how some people talk. Or this is how some people actually present this argument. Verse 8 indicated that this is not what Paul taught. Paul didn't teach this. They were slandering Paul. In other words, they were blaspheming Paul. They were making fun of Paul. In verse 6, Paul gives one answer. He says, no, God is not unrighteous in bringing wrath on sinners. 
God, God's not in the wrong for bringing judgment or wrath on sinners. God's justice is absolute. God's justice is unchanging. And it really shouldn't be doubted even if you don't understand it. Now, that may not sit well with some of you tonight, that God's righteousness and judgment should not be doubted, even if you can't understand it. But it shouldn't. You know, just think about it for a minute, church. You know, I, I talked about, before I came out, when we were doing the tithing and the offering, I talked about the beauty of our skies. And I'm just talking about our skies. I'm not talking about the skies of trillions of planets. And I'm just talking about the sky in our solar system. I'm not talking about the skies and all the billions and billions of solar systems. Now, the God who has the power and the brilliance to create and maintain all that, how would we possibly think that we could fully comprehend and figure out and understand that God? And I always loved that I was taught when I was first coming up as a young believer in Christ, and I'm so grateful that I was taught this by our lead pastor. He said, I take great comfort and security in knowing that there are many things about God that I will never understand. Because if I could understand all that God was and all that God has done, God would be no bigger than me. Well, and I don't know about you, but I need a God that's way bigger than Paul Kern. Way, way bigger than me. Verse 7 and 8 says simply, man is never justified in sinning. You're never justified in sinning. There's no justification that we can make for going against God's righteous law. Not ever, not one time ever. All right, let's move on. We're going to go into uh, chapter 3, verse 9 through 20. Paul's going to talk about everybody needs salvation. Let's read this together. Well then, should we conclude that the Jews are better than others? Well, not at all. For we already have shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. <laughs> wow. This is descriptive, isn't it? Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Look at this. Tongues, lips, mouth. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Now, obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose, look at this, here's the purpose of the law. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show the entire world that they stand guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. And this is the whole thrust of what we're talking about. The law simply, look at this. The law simply shows us that we are sinful. The law simply shows us that we are wrong. 
In other words, when I look in a mirror, the mirror reveals my imperfection. It reveals, but it can never heal. It just shows me that I have mustard on my lip. (laughs) And I need to work at getting it off. You know, it shows me that, you know, things are out of place or something I need to work on. But it can't do anything for me and it can't fix it. That's the law. So verse 9 through 20 is really the climax and the conclusion to this first subject covered under the letter that Paul wrote to the Roman. Man's need for salvation. Not just Gentiles, not just Jews, everybody. Everybody. Now remember, this first section was vital because, you know, you're not going to buy something if it doesn't meet two requirements. Nobody's going to buy anything unless it meets One of two requirements. Number one, I want it. Or number two, I need it. That's what's going to make you buy. All the commercials influence either a want or need. That's what they tap into. So Paul had to show the darkness of sin so man could see the beauty and the need for salvation. Amen? So that's what Paul's doing, and that's why this has been, you know, kind of tough read, the first three chapters of Romans. Because until an individual comes to the conclusion in their own life that they, that they are dark, that they are lost, and that they need to be saved, then they'll never cry out for salvation. They just simply won't. And we have to realize that we're lost before we're going to cry out to be found. But this was the problem that the Jewish people had. They didn't think they were. Imagine you walking up. Just put yourself in this position. Imagine that you go into the outlet mall and you come up to somebody and you say to them, man, I'm I'm here to rescue you. What are they going to do? They're going to look at you and say, get away from me, you weirdo. (laughs) Right? Rescue me from what? I don't need rescuing. But if they were out in the wilderness and they had been lost and they were thirsty and they were hungry and they were afraid and they were desperate and you came to them and you said, I'm here to rescue you, what are they going to do? They're going to throw their arms around you. They're going to be so grateful because they realize that they need to be rescued. That's what Paul is showing us here. See, this is Paul showing us we all need to be rescued. All people need to be rescued. Verse 9 here, Paul opens up the conclusion of the subject. He sums it up here. All men are under the power of sin. Everybody. Then in verse 10 through 18, Paul goes to the word. As a matter of fact, verse 10, it says, it is written. Or he says, the scriptures say. So he goes directly to to the word. As a matter of fact, verse, there's six Old Testament passages just in the next few verses alone that Paul mentions. Verses 10 through 12, Paul mentions Psalms 14 and Psalms 53. Verse 13, Paul mentions Psalms 5 and Psalms 140. In verse 14, Paul mentions Psalms 10. Verse 15 through 17 Paul mentions Isaiah 59, and in Psalms 18, Paul mentions Psalms 36. 
So Paul is just using scripture after scripture after scripture because he knew if he was going to convince the Jewish people, he was going to have to use the Old Testament law to show them, here's what it's been saying all along. I'm not making anything up. It's right here in the Holy Scriptures. So verse 10 through 12, they prove his point in a little different way than verse 13 and 18. Verse 10 through 12 says that man failed to do. Man failed to do. Verse 13 through 18 says what man went out and did. So here's what man failed to do, and here's what man went out and did. Now this is true of every single human being except Jesus. I hate to say it, but that's you too. You're included. Jesus is the only one. So let's look at this. Verse 10 through 12. We see six things man failed in. Number one, a failure in righteousness. We failed. No one is righteous, he says, not one. A failure in righteousness. doesn't matter how good you are. The Bible says that our, our best day, our, our best acts of righteousness are just as dirty as they can be in God's sight. God's that holy. The second one is a failure in reasoning. The first part of verse 11, nobody understands. In other words, their rationality was not there. They were unable to grasp the truth about God's righteousness. So there was a failure in reasoning or a failure in understanding. The third one is a failure in reverence. He says, the second part of verse 11, none seek God. None. Now, once again, this goes back to our heart. Because God's always concerned with our heart. Seeking refers to acknowledgement. If you seek somebody, you're acknowledging them, right? So the fact that man does not seek God means that God does not, that men do not acknowledge God. They don't revere God. They don't show reverence to God. Now, understand when I say this, the fact that man does not seek God doesn't mean he doesn't seek a God. Because a lot of people are religious. They may not realize that they're religious, but most all people that you meet are religious people. Their their worship is simply misdirected. You know, I, I know many religious golfers. They don't ever go to church. They don't pursue God. They pursue golf. I know many religious sports watchers. You know, they they sit at home and they watch sports. That's what they pursue. So they're they're completely and entirely devoted to it. See, and that's what he's talking about here. The fourth one is a failure in uprightness. A failure in uprightness. First part of verse 12, they're all gone out of the way. In other words, man's failed to stay on the path that God told us to stay on. We just couldn't stay on it. I mean, from the very beginning, remember God had a conversation with Cain. Cain, sin's crouching at the door, but you must master it. Did he? Nope. He lost his way. We're not capable. Number five, a failure in respectability. The second part of verse 12, a failure in respectability. It says they are together, all together have become useless. Psalms 14, verse 3 says, they are altogether become filthy. 
The Hebrew word for filthy is corrupt or spoiled. If food is spoiled, what do you do with it? It's useless. You throw it out. It's spoiled. It's no good. You don't have anything to do with it. It's worthless. It's good for nothing. So it's just discarded. So man failed to achieve the end and purpose for which God created him. and Sin spoiled him. Sin has ruined us. And that's why the Apostle Paul used the word flesh to describe the condition of man. Think about it. The most vivid thing that he could use is flesh. Carnal flesh. That's what Paul used to describe it. Just imagine a a big raw piece of roast meat sitting out in the hot sun, 100 degrees, for days. You know what's going to happen to that, right? It's going to rot. There's going to be maggots. That was the description that Paul was giving. He said, what good, is it, what good does it do a rotting piece of flesh to try to be good? It can't. It's spoiled. You have to crucify it. You have to bury it. It has to resurrect. That's the only answer. And that's really the whole point of Romans, what we're looking at. Number six, a failure in reformation. A failure in reformation. There is none that do good, not one. All men have failed. Nobody can pull themselves up out of their sin. Nobody can put themselves up in a place and and achieve true goodness. Nobody can change their basically bad heart. Oh, we can act nice, but, you know, push us. Push us. Watch what happens. Everybody's got their point. Some people is a little longer than others, but everybody's got it. See, men, men try and, and sometimes have external success, but ultimately we all come to our end. <clears throat> you know, you ever see people trying to change and you almost think they have because they've been hanging around Christians? I mean, I've seen this happen with people. You know, they try to change. I, I, you know, I, I, I get around lost people and, and they try to change because they're around me. You know, they clean up that mouth, boy. They won't be careful what they say around, you know, pastor, around the preacher. It's, y'all, y'all just, if y'all were on my end, I mean, just, I'm telling you, it's just, I'm, I'm Paul. And people are like, hey, pastor, hey, preacher. And, I, you know, it's just like, hey, man, we're all in this boat together, you know. But then you hear how they got back around their old crowd and they messed up because it's only external. See, it's got to be. I mean, I've had, I've had people come to me about their heathen friends and, you know, they're, they're going to continue to hang out with them because they're going to convert them. And they've had countless talks with them and they haven't made any headway because that, that's not what's going to do it. It's the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit's going to be the one that's going to change a person's heart and change a person's life. <clears throat> the point is, genuine change is out of man's reach. We just can't do it. We can try and we will fail because ultimately it takes God. The the word good here is that which meets God's favor or pleases him. And man is not naturally capable of doing that. Jesus is, but man isn't. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteousness acts are as filthy rags. So here's the picture that Paul is painting. He's setting up his case. He would have made a great lawyer. It all goes back to him really looking at his mentor and watching what he does. But but Paul gives three things here, and I'm going to end with this. Three things here. One is deceit. 
Two is destruction, and three is defiance. And these are these last few verses here, verses 13 through 18. Deceit, destruction, defiance. So Paul, Paul just shows them how you are unable to achieve what God wants to achieve outside of a supernatural act of God in the heart of a person. So in conclusion, verse 19 and 20, Paul strikes at the heart of the matter. He tells us here why the Mosaic law was given. Now let's look at these last two verses again. These last two verses, so important. Number one, he tells us the Mosaic law was given to show that we can't keep it. None of us have been able to do it. We can't even keep one of the top ten. Well, you may say, well, I've, I've never murdered anybody. Well, Jesus said if you, have murder, if you have anger in your heart toward your brother or your sister, it's the same as murder. Whoops. <laughs> okay. I thought I made one of them. The rest of them, you know, they're just, we, we can't do it. Judaism was and still is a system of works, righteous works. That's what Judaism is. The law was not given for salvation. Paul, Paul basically answers it in two ways. What the law was not for and what the law was for. And I'm going to end with this. What the law was not for, verse 19 and 20. The law was not the universal plan for achieving righteousness. It served a limited number of people for a limited period of time. Also, the law was not for justification. The law could not find us innocent. It couldn't find us right standing with God. It just couldn't do it. And then the second thing, what the law was for. This is the last part of verse 19 and 20. The law was given to reveal our guilt. Once again, I said it's like a mirror. We look at it, we see what's out of place. That's the purpose of the law. The law was to bring us to the knowledge of our fallen nature. When I look in the mirror, I see what's out of place. I see what, you know, where I'm not right. It didn't, now, when I look in the mirror, it doesn't cause my imperfections. It just what? Reflects or reveals my imperfections. So the law didn't cause our fallen nature. It just revealed our fallen nature. So as I end this session, here is man, all guilt, and in great need of salvation. That's where we're at. Aren't you glad tonight that Jesus came? to pay the price and make us right with God forever. Forever and ever and ever. And now, when God looks at you and God looks at me, you know who God sees? Well, if you're a Christian and you put your faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross and the fact that he rose from the dead, I'll tell you who God sees. He sees Jesus. As a matter of fact, when you die and go to heaven, you better hope that's who he sees. Because if he doesn't, you're not getting in. Because there's only one person that is worthy of heaven. There's only one righteous person that is worthy of heaven. 
and that is Jesus. Nothing else that we can do can add to what Jesus did on that cross and what Jesus did when he rose from the dead. So we put all our eggs in the basket of Jesus, amen? And we trust Jesus for our salvation. Jesus is the answer. Come on. Jesus is the way. Stand with me tonight. Let's give Jesus a hand clap. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you tonight. We praise you. It is your righteousness and your righteousness alone. Lord, help us to understand salvation so that we can live free, so that we can lead people into freedom that is only found in Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. Have a great night. You have been listening to the CMC Podcast. For more information about CMC, our different conferences, Christian school, college internship, resources, and more, go to cmchurch.com.